0: The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by InvestTech, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator slash innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July.
1: Hello and welcome to Woman with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Liverpool to an Irish Catholic father and a Protestant mother. At the age of 16, she left school and soon after trained as a nurse at Warrington General Hospital before starting her own business, a child daycare service for working parents. She then made her move into politics, firstly as an advisor to Oliver Letwin, and then in 2005 she won her seat in mid-Bedfordshire with an 11,000 majority in Parliament. She quickly made waves as a politician willing to speak her mind, describing the Tory leaders, David Cameron and George Osborne, as two arrogant posh boys with no passion to want or understand the lives of others. She also made history as the first sitting MP to appear on reality television through I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, leading to her brief suspension. A best-selling novelist, she joined the Department of Health in 2019 and was appointed Minister for Mental Health and Patient Safety. But her biggest promotion came last year when Boris Johnson named her as the new Culture Secretary. Since taking on the role, she has regularly made the news for her bid to rid the arts and media world of snobbery and elitism and is now charged with steering the online harms bill through Parliament, the privatisation of Channel 4, and what happens to Chelsea Football Club. And that's before we get to the BBC. All while finding time to defend the Prime Minister from criticism. My guest today is Nadine Dorries. Nadine, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. we wanted you on for a long time, so thrilled to have you here in the offices. In terms of the first question, what we tend to ask all guests is, would you describe yours as a happy childhood?
0: Yeah, it was... A difficult childhood. We were incredibly poor. My father was quite ill, and um, there was not kind of like the welfare state benefit system that there is today. So it was a tough childhood, actually, very tough. And um, I could recount, you know, dozens of stories, but sometimes I feel it just sounds like I'm saying, oh, you know, we had no shoes, but, you know, we didn't. (laughs) And it's kind of, I do remember hiding under the sink from the red man, And, um, yeah, when the red man came. So it was a tough childhood.
1: Yeah, you you grew up on a a council estate. And I wondered, at that time, what was the politics of Liverpool? I've mentioned your um, parents' different religions. Uh, Were you very aware of, of it?
0: Oh, so aware of it. So aware of it that I remember even at three years of age, my grandmother and my mother arguing because my mother hadn't been churched after having my brother... And it was, it was very much a divide between the Catholic side of my father's family and the Protestant side of my mother's family. I mean, I don't think people today would actually, who weren't aware of what it was like in Liverpool in the 1960s, would really understand what it was like. But it was, it was very much, you know, political. Everybody in Liverpool in those days spoke about religion, uh, politics or football. It was the burning passion of conversations. You know, I've said I remember as a child lying on the floor, falling asleep while those conversations raged over my head. So I was kind of born and brought up in politics and, interestingly, in football, because my great-grandfather was one of the founders of Everton Football Club. And religion is, is those, those were the three kind of things that I
1: grew up um, in and we're imbued by as I grow up, really. And did you start to identify as a Tory from a young age or when, when you were seeing all this politics? Or were you developing? So or?
0: that's really interesting, actually, because I went through a what am I? I remember standing in our front step while our neighbour Sue Manning was scrubbing her step And it was an election. It was in the early 70s. And I remember asking her, who are you voting for? I wasn't old enough to vote. And she went, "Um, I'm voting for, uh, we're going to vote for Labour because they're the the party of the workers. And I said to my mum, who I think it was my mum I asked, who are we voting for? And she said, we're voting for the party of the family, the Tories. And so already there were those, those divisions. It might have been Sue, actually, who said she was going to vote for the for the party of the family. But there was definitely that, you know, one's the party for the family and one's the party for the workers, and that was... And I remember being aware of that from quite a young age. But it was really Margaret Thatcher that shaped my political ideology because when Right to Buy came in, for my family and many families in our council estate that was literally like somebody from Westminster putting a hand into our council estate and lifting people up. And, you know, everybody had packing cases dividing in their gardens and everybody's front door was the same colour that the council painted it, which was a dark green. And as people began to buy their houses through right to buy, the packing cases were ripped up, the front doors all became... And everyone's individuality came into the street... And you'd see flowers being planted in what was just a little strip of land in front of the the garden, in front of the house. The metal railings that were just taken away. You're watching that. I remember seeing that transformation. I remember asking my dad why the people across the road were taking the packing cases up that were dividing their garden from next door. He said, oh, they bought their house this week. They're putting in a fence. And it was that. And I think Labour, Tony Blair's ideology, the ideology of new Labour, to remove right to buy for me was kind of why would you do that why would you remove that whole layer of social mobility that that ladder out for people and so that really is what formed my made me a Tory
1: was right to buy. At 16 you leave school and you train as a nurse lots of obviously your colleagues on this uh, podcast come on and they talk about the time at Oxbridge and I wondered <laughs> <laughs> when you were at school was university like pitched as an option was it was it never really on on the table
0: no it's interesting actually because I remember one of the boys from my school going to I used to get the bus and he was on the bus and I knew it was his last day and I said to him, so where are you going to he went I'm going to Oxford and I went where's that I had no idea what it was I had no idea where it was and he was going to so I remember and my mum saying to me his mum and dad are really proud. He's going to Oxford, and I remember thinking, how did he do that? How did he? How did he manage to do that? I had no idea what even a university was at that point. Nobody did. University was not something that was talked about. You went to Fords if you wanted a good job. You went to work
1: at Fords on nights, and you train as a nurse, and you go on to spend a year in Zambia, I think, and you come back and you start your own business. I was well.
0: Obviously, I was. I had my, I had my eldest daughter. And I was still nursing. But then we decided to start... Um, I decided to start my own business, yeah. Which was... It was in 1990... 91. Yeah, 1990, 1991 that I decided. And it was, again, very much... You won't remember because you're too young. But the issue of women not returning to work was huge. Something like 92% of women did not return to the workplace when they had a baby. And the reason why was because there was absolutely no childcare and no childcare support. And there was a the huge problem of benefit in kind uh, taxation if employers try to assist women to get them back into the workplace. And so I decided to establish my own consultancy at the time, which was Company Kids. And and it was just it was I was just had the right idea. It was a it was a business I started from an original concept of my own concept. But it was the right place and the right time because I literally just went around organisations where I knew they had a high number of very valuable females who were going to go on maternity leave and not return. So Glaxo, Pfizer, Smith-Kline Beecham as it was at the time, Shell, Procter & Gamble, Goldman Sachs. And, and they were, I never did a day's advertising. I just went into each of those businesses, tailored a, a support package for their, their women. So when they went on maternity leave, they became my responsibility until they returned. And it was our job to get their childcare in place. And it just went from the word of mouth, from one chief executive to another. And then I sold it to Bupa in 1998.
1: Now you have three daughters. Was, it, was your experience of motherhood, did it impact that a lot in the sense that you were kind of thinking yourself about how you balance that with a career?
0: Yeah, no, it did. And it was very much, you know, having a family myself and still wanting to have a career myself and realising my options were incredibly limited. It was a bit of a shock to me. It was kind of wow, I didn't realise it's going to be so hard. The expectation is that I should always be a stay at home mum. And that's what really helped me to, to kind of have the idea of the business.
1: Really. I mean, I, I still think there's lots of people who aren't having children because they just don't think they can. It's, I think there's, there's lots of women it still feel as though it's career versus children. Yeah, very much so. So at what point do you start to think, I want a career in politics? Because you sell the company. Um, and during. What's that
0: point? Yeah. It was literally, I remember sat in the first thing. I remember my husband was driving and I was reading the Telegraph newspaper, and it was something Ken Clark had said which absolutely infuriated me. And I remember my husband saying to me, Well, instead of complaining from the outside, why don't you get involved and do something from the inside? You've sold the business now, you can do whatever you like. And I thought, You're right, as he often was about most things. I thought, You're right, yeah, I can. So, and I just joined the party. Met a few people.
1: And did you just know it'd be the Tory party at that point yet?
0: So yeah, that was when I kind of, yeah, it was pre-97. I joined the party in, I think, 96 or 97. And it was when the party was completely just, you know, disintegrating. I, I read an interview that Tony Blair had given in the Sunday Times in a magazine and I realise now that was a big interview at the time for him, and it was a really good interview. But again, it just came back to social mobility and and things like right to buy for me. And of course, everything Margaret Thatcher had done, I mean, she was a hero, you know, where I came from. So the fact that she, in what are now called red wall seats like mine, I remember a car coming round with a loudspeaker on the top um, during the election, and kids running after it, shouting Margaret Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher. You know, you just that kind of reach that she had into backgrounds where people like me came from, that was the kind of person, the party I wanted to be a part of.
1: Now, so your route to politics, let's go for it, because you stood in one seat before you won your seat, mm-hmm. and you also advised um, Oliver Letwin. H- how was that experience? Was it a meeting of minds? <laughs>
0: Actually, Oliver and I got on really, really well. I really liked Oliver. He was the most, uh, as individuals go, he's more scatty than me. But I really liked Oliver, yeah. Then we got on very well. Um, so you enter Parliament. What surprises you? Just about everything. And yeah, I've been working there for, I've been downstairs in the Block for four years. But wow, just about everything. It was, I remember John Hayes saying to me um, in the tea room, he said, do you know who you remind me of? And he, said, he said, you're like Alice in Wonderland in that book. You look like you've just fallen down the hole in the Mad Hattest Tea Party. And you're blinking and looking at what people are saying, like we're talking a different language. And he said, and you're right, it is like the Mad Hattest Tea Party here. And it really, that's what it felt like to me. People were talking in alien concepts and languages, and it was just, it was a bit, of, it was as far removed from normal as anything could have been. Did you feel like you didn't belong there? or did yeah. You, yeah. yeah, very much so. Very much like what have I done, and this is just not a normal place to be.
1: Yeah, and even in terms of colleagues on your own side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just I realised that there were some very interesting characters around. There's a leadership contest. You initially backed David Davis. I yeah. yeah. um Yeah. Then I think you withdraw your support for David Davis. Or...
0: So I did. There was something that happened. Really, it was uh, tactics used to discredit david cameron and which i wasn't really happy with and so i just didn't want you know i was pretty new into politics i did not want to be a part of that which is really interesting because now it would look as though it's just small fry
1: yeah a lot has changed um let's talk about david cameron briefly as leader because i mentioned the introduction obviously your comments about david cameron and george osborne which spread far and wide but I wanted. so you're in parliament it's a strange experience well, I think they kind of hit yeah. a pulse at a time
0: I think it was they did I and mean, I was shocked at the pickup because it was huge but I think it was almost though I'd said something that people were thinking I'd be the first person to say it
1: what happens when you say that do you have uh, people calling you you know linked to them or even the people themselves to say you shouldn't have said that, or or do you find actually you're just in political Siberia and people aren't reaching out?
0: No, I was actually, I regretted calling them posh boys in a way because it kind of, it was, it was not really what I meant. What I meant was probably privileged boys, and I should have used that word rather than the posh boys, I think. What I was trying to say was that actually I think in politics, people do need to be able to relate to the lives of people that you're governing for. And, and I felt with, at the time, with Dave and George, as though they weren't actually doing that. and And I may have been wrong, you know, maybe they were relating, but didn't look as though they were. Everything looked very, everything I saw was irritating me. Because it was almost boys boarding school type behaviour, very chummy and very very jokey and and it wasn't really, it didn't seem serious enough to me or relatable enough to, certainly from the background that I'd come from and the problems that people living in that I knew and still know today and I'm still friends with people I was at school with. And it didn't feel to me as though they were really relating to the problems of the day in a serious way. And, and that's just what it was, really. And it was, I probably just said, shouldn't have said it, but I did.
1: Uh, it seems in your career in politics, you've often done things a little bit differently. And I, and I don't know if that's perhaps not knowing the rules or actually just choosing to, to do things your own way. I think it's probably a bit of my autism as well, to be honest. Yeah.
0: So it's kind of like that, that definitely comes into play. But it's, um, yeah, I do, but... Yeah, my special advisor has a hard time, so I I do do things a bit differently.
1: One of those was uh, I'm a Celebrity, which I did mention in the introduction, and you go on the show. At the time, you were a backbencher, but there's a big furore while you're on it. I think you're suspended halfway through, or or while you're on the show. Is that the case? Do they they tell you that you're facing suspension from the Tory party, or having the whip removed, sorry?
0: Yeah, actually, the the first person I spoke to when I was in Australia was Fraser Nelson. So he was the first person to get through to me when I got out of the jungle, I think Fraser told me, which is interesting. But what was more interesting was what Fraser told me, which is that the chief whip at the time was denying that he knew I'd gone. And he was doing it from his sunbed in the Bahamas. So, you know, Fraser Nelson told me that. And I was kind of slightly shocked because the chief whip did know I was going. I'd gone to see him. I'd had a meeting with him and told him. And so I was kind of slightly stunned that he was saying that he didn't know I'd gone, and that, um, and I was stunned that Fraser had told me that he was doing it for his son in the Barmas because, of course, Parliament was on recess at the time, and I missed no government votes while I was away at all. But of course, you know, the spin and the way it's portrayed was that I'd deserted government, and which wasn't the case at all. The chief whip actually, uh, the former chief whip Andrew Mitchell, actually came up to me and apologised. Uh, a little while afterwards, and said, well, I'm sorry, but, you know, it was all very pressured at the time, and so he apologised for having said that he didn't know, but he did know.
1: You've also appeared on Channel 4 and a few um, of their kind of documentaries back in that period too, and I just wondered, is one of the things you're trying to do is to show the public more of what politicians do? Is that one of the driving forces, or...?
0: Well, I think at the time I just found opposition so utterly boring, <laughs> and uh,
1: Parliament, to be fair, at the time. You have got to go to Australia, just- right? So, yeah, just did more interesting things. Now, at this point, I wonder in your career, do you, opposition backbench, but I also wonder in the sense that because you are speaking your mind, because you are facing things like that suspension, do you think that you're almost destined for a life on the backbenches? Are, are you imagining, were there points when you thought you're never going to be in government?
0: Oh, Go I never, never really um, intended to be, ever. So, I thought I got into politics too late. I think I was 49 when I became an MB. And I thought it was definitely a younger person's job to be. You needed to be in there from your 20s. And I realised I'd, you know, I'd been a life in business and nursing and healthcare and I just didn't think that getting into government was my destiny at all. It was to be a constituency MP, to be
1: a backbencher. Boris Johnson becomes prime minister, and he has he was he a friend of yours early on? In when did you kind of cross so paths? Boris with him? and I
0: shared an office near to each other in Norman Shaw North when I was first an MP, and we kind of struck up a friendship from those days. And I just found him, and whereas whereas in my first days as an MP, a lot of the MPs who were there were very stuffy, and not all were friendly. Boris was just incredibly helpful, incredibly... He spoke to everybody the same, whether, you know, you were me, from my background, and had no idea, not a clue what was going on at the time, or you were somebody who was, you know, an academic. He just spoke to everybody exactly the same. And I kind of appreciated that. And I remember having some constituents down, and they were in awe because they just met him. And he took them into his office, and he made them a cup of tea, and and he was just, like, just such a nice guy. And, yeah, it really got on well with him. And I always found it quite funny, actually, because it was like yin and yang, you know, our backgrounds couldn't have been, at the time, I thought more different. I've since learned that actually his background was not um, the amazing background that he's portrayed as being, you know, another posh boy. He actually had it very tough as a kid as well.
1: Now... Boris Johnson becomes Prime Minister and then you are on the, and min, the ministerial ladder, first in the Department of Health. And in terms of that brief, I mean, you were under secretary and then moved up to Minister of State. So during that period, what do you have to change about yourself? Do you, do you, what, are the, what is the biggest change from moving from backbencher to minister in terms of how you approach politics? Oh, it's, I mean, it's huge. It was, um, I think the hours
0: that you have to work as a minister were certainly a shock. It's seven days a week. Maybe not as as intensive as it is a social state, but it's certainly, you know, it's quite full on. And of course, I was in health and we had the pandemic in 2020. So I was there right. In fact, I walked into Matt Hancock's office and was stood at the other side of the desk when he got the phone call and we knew what we were dealing with with COVID. So it was to be in health as a minister throughout the COVID pandemic, That was just full-on. It was like there was no such thing as a life. It was working from early in the morning till late at night, seven days a week.
1: what point was that when Matt Hancock got that phone call?
0: It was on the Thursday, and then I was diagnosed on the Friday. And and I was told by Professor Keith Willis, who phoned me that night, whose first two words I probably can't... um, Or was it Matt's, actually? (laughs) So there was a bit of a shock, because nobody expected you know, anybody that they knew to get it. And uh, Keith basically told me I was patient zero, I was the first person in the UK to be tested and diagnosed who had not been abroad. And they now knew at that moment they were looking at something far more serious. So it was that kind of like... I knew just a few days before that we were dealing with something from abroad that was being brought into the UK, but just like 24 hours later... We knew that it was actually people within the UK who were spreading between. So it was a bit of a difficult time for us in health at the time because then, of course, we all started going down with it one after the other. And I'd been to the International Women's Day uh, lunch with the Prime Minister and lots of other members of the Cabinet. So, yeah...
1: Yeah, suddenly getting lots of messages from people about COVID contacts at that point. I
0: mean, it was, we hadn't even got a testing regime up at that point. We hadn't got, we didn't have tests that we could, you know, use mass tests between individuals. It was, every day was, and as soon as I was fit to be back at work, I was back at work where we were doing exactly that. My job was nosecomia infections in hospitals and which comes under patient safety because it was, you know, a bit of a, why is it that people are going into hospital without COVID and we've got people in PPE and red and green areas and everything separated and isolated out and people are coming in healthy and they're still catching COVID when they come into hospital. That was my particular, uh, the Nightingale hospitals, you know, the amount of work that needed to be achieved in a very short space of time. And we were literally every day, you know, being faced with new information, new data, new facts that we had to respond to worldwide information that was coming in about what was happening over the world globally, not just in the UK. What was happening in our care homes? What was happening in hospitals? What was happening in community transmission? What was happening with the different variants? How the virus was mutating? There was so much to deal with. And there was, you know, five of us, ministers, Matt and four others of us. It was just... A full-on amount of work.
1: Quite the initiation. Yeah. Um, Now, I want to talk about your current brief, because, of course, we do have limited time on this podcast, um, unfortunately. (laughs) So you're appointed as Culture Secretary. The Prime Minister appoints you. Are you surprised? Did you have a sense that this could be coming? Were you... uh, I I never quite know these things. You sounded out a bit before. So I was exhausted
0: after two years in mental health and um, patient safety. I was exhausted. And so I was ready to go home. And and I told them that, and I'd given all my clothes away to Afghani women who were being returned to the UK. I'd taken seven bin bags of clothes and a drop-off point just a few days before, and I was ready to go home. And then I got a phone call, which was a lovely phone call, actually, saying the car's going to bring you over to Downing Street, enjoy the walk up to the front door. And I was going, what for? He wants—he doesn't even need to speak to me, or he can just speak to me in the Commons. Why do I have to go to number ten? And it was, I uh, definitely went, Nadine, just enjoy the moment. And I thought, this is ridiculous, because this is early in the afternoon. Why am I going up so early in the afternoon? And, um, yeah, and it was it's a day I'll never forget. I remember being taken to a room in Downing Street on my own and still had my phone with me. And my kids were texting me, and they were going, Mum, Mum, Laura Kunzberg says she's got DCMS. And I was going, really? No, no, that can't be true. And they were thinking, think now, what job wouldn't you take? So I thought, what job wouldn't I take? And I knew very quickly which jobs I would not take. Which but, jobs wouldn't you take? Um, I definitely wouldn't have taken... Well, I'm not going to say.
1: I'll just, yeah. I'll just guess. <laughs> and it was
0: DCMS.
1: So... Which was the job... Was that probably, like, top of and your I've list? I've always told yeah. Laura,
0: she promoted me.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Getting it out there. Um, uh, so... In that role, I mean, how did you find the reaction to you receiving that appointment? Because on oh, that day... I mean, people...
0: sheer and utter snobbery. Yeah,
1: because it was pretty critical.
0: It was horrendous.
1: So you had on one hand people saying, oh, Nadine Doris has been picked because they want to fight the culture wars. And on the other hand, you had people saying, why has she, you know, been quite critical of the appointment? Yeah. Were you, t- were you surprised by it? So I wasn't surprised by it. I expected something that, you know, along
0: those lines. But for one thing, Katie, it's, you know... It's an absolute fact, and I hate saying it because I hate playing the women card, but there are men, some men, who do have a problem with a woman from my background achieving because they've come from a completely different background and haven't yet quite achieved or probably will never achieve, and so I'm used to that. I do have to deal with that all the time, and you know you have to look at Alist- the way Alistair Campbell, you know, just like... A has abusively tweeted about me over the years. John Nicholson, Ian just, I can just sit here and list off names to you. But you kind of get used to that. But I suppose it was a bit of a surprise that the left, you know, the champions of people supposedly from backgrounds like mine, then piled in and attacked someone from my background and people who had no idea who i was did not know me in any way whatsoever knew nothing about me i'd never heard me speak knew nothing about me whatsoever who decided to be so utterly abusive and the only thing i can think is that um and you know we've discussed this a number of times i think the fact that they realized that i'm not i've, I've gone there to achieve you know i've gone there to deliver I've taken this post up because things are going to happen. Online safety bill, you know, gone through second reading without even a vote. Things are going to happen. Channel 4 is going to be sold. The BBC licence fee is going to be reviewed very soon and is going to be changed. Things are going to happen under my watch. Now, I realise that over a long period of time, not a huge amount has been delivered from my department. I'm now in a position where I've got five bills to deliver and this department hasn't had five bills in 20 years. But I think they, always, they knew that I was going to deliver and that was that, you know, the, the bills, the notions of Channel 4 being sold, the licence fee, BBC, all of those things have been in the ether for years. I think there was a sudden realisation something might happen now. And I think that was part of the attack
1: now let's talk about those various things that you have to do in your job um you mentioned the online safety bill see second reading gone through there have been tory mps talking about their concerns you've had steve baker recently writing an op-ed about his and then also at the spectator i think we've been pretty critical so
0: can we just say we've got 365 mps you've talked you've talked about one there's actually two who've got concerns so you know out of 365 i don't want the percentage that is but it's pretty minimal
1: so two, two mps so you're pretty confident about the next stage
0: We, you know, we've engaged with MPs all the way through, having gone through second reading with a huge amount of support. You know, Katie really needs, people really need to be careful about this. So I think it's important that, you know, here in Westminster, where we're making this podcast now, people are, some people, a very small number of people are talking about freedom of speech actually across the country. The bill has been really welcomed, particularly by parents, prospective parents. And just in the past 24 hours, the Football Association, the Premier League, the English Football League have all come out in support of it. The Children's Commissioner is in support of the online safety bill and a whole raft of stakeholders and charities, children's charities. So the very narrow conversation about freedom of speech is only happening here in Westminster across the country the bill has been really welcomed and just on that point about freedom of speech this bill and it amazes me how many people haven't read it and are making freedom of speech comments on it this bill actually protects and enhances freedom of speech from what it was before. So before, and I'll give you an example, we were dependent on the 2003 Miscommunications Act and the 1988 Act, I think it was. So do you remember the Robin Hood Airport, uh, the, the guy who says was gonna bomb Robin Hood Airport? He was arrested, he was charged, he was convicted. That wouldn't happen today because that tweet he sent out was obviously a joke. That wouldn't happen today. Under the new bill now, he'd have to prove beyond reasonable doubt within a court, that that tweet was intended to cause serious harm. And so that wouldn't even happen now. The bill has actually enhanced freedom of speech and, and has made the situation far better than it was before. So those people who are talking, and one of the criticisms that has made to me is, you're giving Nick Clegg and Mark Zuckberg more powers. They have all the powers in the world they want right now. I couldn't possibly concede them more power. They have total power. They are the arbiters of free speech. They decide what content gets left online and what gets taken down. They decide who they're going to slap a fake news notice on or whose podcasts they'll take down or whose YouTube videos or which journalistic content they will allow or won't allow on their sites. They are the arbiters of free speech. We've changed that so that actually comes back to enforcing free speech as a principle, and not something that's decided
1: by somebody on the West Coast. Now, if you'll forgive me, being a small Westminster minority, just for one more question on that. And, and I do think like broadly, lots of people do support lots of things in terms of self-harm, lots of parts. But on that, just that freedom of speech element, I think what critics say... Maybe two in the Tory party. There's more in the media. <laughs> uh, we'll say is well. Why in the media? Because the media's yeah. got carve outs. The media has huge journalistic protections. And, that and it didn't perhaps have yeah. And, and and this is I suppose just if I put one scenario. To you, I think one of the concerns is the idea that if all these you know internet giants have, feel as though it is their duty to now do this, and they got uh, they might feel incentivized to take down more articles, to take Not down true, more posts because
0: they have to. And with the bill, they have to be transparent. And consistent. So with the the relationship that Ofcom will now have with these tech giants, they have to show Ofcom what the basis is that they will be doing that is on. And they will have to be consistent across the board. And they can't take any content down unless they, particularly journalistic content, until they've informed a journalist that they're going to take it down, told them why they're going to do it, give them a right of robust appeal... And when they make their decision on that peel, be consistent on those decision making. So, as the situation is now, they can take anyone's content down whenever they want. They will not be able to do it, and they don't have to reply. So, you know, if they took something down that you, if they decide to remove our podcast, or they decide to remove something that you've written, they don't have to tell you they're removing it. They don't have to tell you why, and they don't have to respond to you when you ask them why. Under this bill, they will have to do all of those things.
1: Just, just a final thing on that. So, if we take, okay, let's take twenty eighteen. Boris Johnson wrote an article which was quite controversial at the time, uh, where he, you know, said Muslim women wearing the burqa looked like letterboxes. Mm-hmm. It was an example he gave, and lots were widely condemned that. Do you think under the online safety bill, you can have a situation where people think, well, that is an online harm? Uh, in terms of you know, no, religious because it's part of
0: public debate, so public democratic content, and uh, anything which contributes to public debate is not it, it. It isn't applicable. That
1: just can't happen. So it wouldn't happen. So no. Can, okay. Now, the the final and thing the I, word I, intent.
0: Yeah. Sorry, is very important in this bill. So anything that anybody does, they'd have to prove that they intended to cause harm. So. For example, somebody posting tweets about, say, most are, misses a penalty, or just an example. And when people are writing tweets, bombarding social media posts, when those people are putting racist and quite disgusting comments out there, they are applicable. They do apply because they are obviously intended to cause harm. They're also illegal because they're illegal offline, so they will become illegal online. So that counts. So that really makes a difference. But a journalist writing, well journalists are
1: or a, p- a politician in the letterbox example. you, no, d- you don't think that's, that' would, that's part. You whether, argue it's, that's whether it's
0: something along those lines or whether it's the trans debate, whether people are discu- which is quite live at the moment, that is
1: all part of discourse which is part of the public debate and that isn't applicable. And just finally, out, where do Twitter pylons come in? Because I think you could take some of these examples, such as an article, and say, well, that's resulted in a Twitter pylon on someone.
0: Well, it depends on what it is. Yeah. So a Twitter pylon on a footballer because he missed a penalty of racist hatred is applicable. Twitter pylon on me, because someone doesn't like the online
1: safety bill, doesn't count because that's public debate. Now, um, has you mentioned, obviously, yourself and Twitter pylons. I wondered... As we talked a little bit, women particularly, but I would say particularly in your case, um, and perhaps also Pretty Patel would fall into this, there's a certain level of venom online often when, when you do things. And I wonder, has that fed into your experience with this online safety bill, um, the fact that, that you're all seeing, I suppose, from, from the darker sides of the, web, of the web in terms of how people can use it to, you know, put lots of poison online?
0: Well, they do. I think the, you know, the absolute mantra is don't look. So don't, I mean, I Do not you live by that? Well, you know, in my job, I don't have time to. So it's just... Good way of stopping it. I literally, I literally don't have time to. So I now depend on, you know, a team to say to me, do you want to reply to this person or do you want to... I've got no idea. And when, uh, when I'm told uh, by somebody in the team, probably best not to switch on your phone for the next 24 hours. I don't. So, you know, I've got no... I have no notifications. I don't even have Twitter on my phone anymore. So It's
1: pr- probably a good way to have a... Well, okay. so it's, <laughs>
0: it's it's on a computer, but I don't, you know, I, I just don't
1: see the stuff that constantly comes up. Um, no, you seem very tough, t- to be honest, in the sense that you... Do I? Yeah. And I, that, that, I think that's the impression that people have of you, is that you are tough and you're, you're not put off by things. And, for example, with the, there's been times when the Prime Minister's been under pressure and others haven't gone out to bat for him. And I just wondered, do you feel like you, are, you have, you know, thick skin on this stuff? Or, or are people not seeing the fact that some of this criticism does get to you.
0: Um, do I have a thick skin? So I think I just try and do what is the right thing to do. And yeah, I mean if I'm I the Prime Minister even to ask me to go on no has to ask me to go on to defend the Prime Minister, I will do it if I think he's being unfairly attacked. So again, it's um it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because I've noticed that a lot of people today tend to be kind of quite risk of it they don't like people not liking them and so they'd rather not put their heads above the parapet and that's where social media has changed behavior so whereas before other people would probably quite happily give a comment to a journalist or a newspaper in a conversation or in a quote right now people are more reluctant to and i know i I know journalists find this more they find it difficult now to get mps to give them quotes and anything particularly named quotes that because everybody's scared of what the online pylons will be or what will happen to them or their reputations, you know, one thing, you know, a horrible comment or something online just goes around the world in seconds, you know. And so I'm probably old school, you know, I'm like 65 in a few weeks. I've just been here a long time. And so I'm I'm less worried about my long-term career. So I'm less concerned about you know, getting a bad rep or or being attacked for supporting the Prime Minister. Whereas I think some people who've got a career in front of them, I think, oh, don't want to rock the boat just now, you know. So I think that's got something to do with it.
1: Yeah, and I suppose if you've been someone who has spoken on various issues throughout your career, you're in Cabinet now. It's not as though you're saying, well... If anything, you'll be changing tack by doing something yeah, different. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, I, I think I said once in an interview, when someone said, what would you, why would you stop supporting the Prime Minister? Well, if I don't like kick dog, obviously I'm not going to blindly support him, whatever he does. But, you know, it's but he's the Prime Minister of the elected government. Of, and I'm a Cabinet Minister. That is my job. It is my responsibility to... And it's part of collective responsibility to support the Prime Minister and support the government. It's what I do. It's what every Cabinet Minister under Tony Blair did when Tony Blair was in power, and it's what I'm doing with Boris Johnson.
1: Channel 4. Then, announcement that it will be privatised obviously had led to a backlash in some quarters. Some in your own party, particularly on the One Nation wing, have been quite critical of it. There are those who say the decision to privatise is punishment for Channel 4's coverage being too um, biased to the left. I wonder what you say to that, but also kind of what we can expect in terms of the next steps of this.
0: So, you know... I- Channel 4 isn't being sold for ideological reasons. I know those criticisms will be there, and there's nothing I can do to stop people who want to say that from saying it, but it's not. It's, you know, Margaret Thatcher's idea to establish Channel 4, to use it as a seedbed to grow raw talent and independent talent and to make new British content was the right thing to do at the time. But she also wanted to sell it in... Nineteen eighty-eight, as Charles Moore has um, informed me, and it's just the fact that we the state owns a broadcaster today is kind of quite bizarre, and it's it's absolutely a, a Thatcherite policy to sell Channel Four and to allow it actually to because one of the problems at the moment is. Only 7% of independent production companies get their funding from Channel 4. That's a tiny amount. It's not doing even what it was established to do. And Channel 4 needs to raise money. And although we don't pay for the day-to-day running of Channel 4, when Channel 4 needs funding, it comes to the government. And what we need to do to allow, and if it needs borrowings, it comes to the government. And it's, you know, advertising, we're in a a world now where the main funding, the lifeblood of Channel 4, which was advertising, now has so many other places to go. Netflix is probably about to start advertising. So... That's more competition that those advertisers, that Channel 4 is going to be facing because those advertisers will be moving to different places. So we want it to be able to to raise revenue. We want it to grow. We want it to make fresh content. But, you know, it's not allowed to sell its content under its present license. It's not allowed to produce and sell and to grow in that way. It's just wholly dependent on advertisers. So how do we get more money? How do we let Channel 4 survive? How do we pump funding into it? We privatise it. We let it go and raise funding. We let it do what it's supposed to do. It can raise as much money as it likes. And Channel 4 can continue, but it will continue privately, not state-owned. And the great thing about it is, is that whatever it's sold for, we'll be able, I'll be able to pump that money back into the sector, particularly into training and skills. Because we've got... 17 studios that I'm aware of opening in the next 12 months, film studios in the UK, but an absolute lack of trained people and skilled people to work in those studios. So using that money from Channel 4 to train people in the skills that we need to get them into the film business, that's what I want to do with the money, to get it back into the sector. And it seems to me like it's a win-win. Channel 4 raises the investment it wants. We get to pump money back into the sector. Why wouldn't we do that?
1: See if some of your colleagues come around to that. Um. Well, actually,
0: just to to so um, again, there are 365 MPs, and we've done a careful analysis of all of our
1: MPs, and we very comfortably have the number that we need to get this through. Final two questions on the BBC. Um, you said that uh, in various kind of interviews and comments that ultimately there needs to be more of a focus. Um, I'm, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so you can correct me, but almost. I, perhaps something of moving away from kind of metropolitan elite to more working class opportunities. Do you think they're listening? Are you seeing changes yet in terms of how the BBC approached some of the problems that you've raised?
0: So, you know, Tim Davey himself, Director General, said that the BBC has a problem with impartiality. He had to, because if it didn't, why would we have had the Sorota review and the Dyson review and the 10-point plan and the announcement about how they were going to implement that plan to tackle a lack of impartiality within the BBC it is a fact the BBC has a problem with impartiality but you know don't lose can't lose sight of the fact that the BBC also does a fantastic job it makes great programming it's a global British brand across the world everybody loves the BBC but that doesn't mean you know it's like having a family and someone in your family has you know a a problem, it's like pretending it's not there. It is there, and it is an issue that needs to be dealt with. And I think there are, in terms of the longer term outlook for the BBC, you know, it's a a licence fee model that was established in 1946, 45, 46. It's completely out of date. All of their convictions, 76% of their convictions, 74 76% of their convictions are women, because women quite often take the responsibility for the household bills. It's just, it's completely outdated. And so we are going to um, very soon announce that we are going to be looking very seriously at the how we fund the BBC moving forward and um, be moving through that process to get to the point where, well ahead of the charter renewal in 27, we are ready to implement... A new way of funding the BBC moving forward.
1: So moving, so it's not going to look as it currently does. Just give me a scoop there, Katie. I yeah. Okay. So this will be moving away from perhaps the full TV license model that we currently have.
0: So the charter renewal, when the license fee model would come up, is uh, 2027. So obviously that's into the future. That's five years away. So I've got the mid-term review coming up, which will be announced very very soon and in that we're going to be looking at how Ofcom hold the BBC to account and then very shortly after that we will be announcing other measures that we're going to put into place to start looking at how the BBC will be funded in the future so that we're well in time to have that
1: in place for the charter renewal in 2027. If the Tories are still in power. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Um, Now final question is one we ask everyone on this podcast and I'm actually really want to know your answer because I imagine you've been given quite a lot of advice in your time and I imagine you've probably ignored quite a lot of it but I could be wrong <laughs> colleagues telling you what you should be doing in terms of parliament and, and so forth so what is the worst advice you've ever been given
0: I suppose the worst advice was when I began as an MP and I was worried about my daughters and because the youngest one was still quite young And a lot of advice I got was, oh, don't worry, kids are adaptable, but they're not. Kids are not adaptable to their mother receiving abuse or, you know, I had a stalker for eight years. They're not adaptable to their mother having a stalker. And yeah, kids are not adaptable. That's a complete myth. I think that was the worst piece of advice I was
1: given thank you Nadine thanks for listening and if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts please do get in touch just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk